title of my sermon this morning is A Godly Example. I have not lived in Connecticut since 2006, so 11 plus years, right? And I have actually been a resident of California since 2010, 2011, sometime around then, including having my California driver's license, and California, I'm registered to vote in California. Yet amazingly, you'd be shocked how many times the state of Connecticut sends me jury duty summons. I mean, I have gotten jury summons for jury duty in Connecticut more frequently in Connecticut than I have in California since I've lived in California. Pretty crazy. Jury duty is just one of those things that most of us kind of dread, even though it's our civic duty. And let's just say it's not just us common folk, if you want to call us that, um, that get jury duty. On Wednesday, August 5, 2015, potential jurors in Dallas, Texas, were surprised to see none other than former President George W. Bush report for jury duty. And this is what his spokesman said. It says, President Bush received his jury summons and reported for service this morning at the George Allen Courts building in Dallas. He sat through the jury selection panel for a case in Judge Eric Moyer's court on the 14th district or civil district, but surprise was not picked to serve as a juror. He was there for about three hours and posed for photos um, with other jurors, judges, and court staff. Let's see. He is not the only individual to, um, of, of uh, I guess, a high political uh, rank to be summoned for jury duty. In April 2015, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, was summoned. I just don't think he's the kind of guy you want on your jury. In 2011, then-current Vice President Joe Biden was summoned to jury duty in Delaware. And then just a couple of months ago, former President Barack Obama got the call uh, in Cook County, Illinois. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, it, it kind of encourages me to want to do jury duty more if I see other people doing it. Now, my thought was, isn't that the truth of a lot of different things? If you look up to someone else's example, you're more likely to be receptive to a particular task that you have been assigned this morning, we're going to look to the example of two individuals who we know so very little about, yet they have such an amazing, they, they've given us such an amazing example to learn from. And those two individuals, of course, are Simeon and Anna. But before we do, let's go ahead and take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you now for the chance you've given us to gather in your name. Bless me as I do my best to proclaim your word. Allow all of us, including myself, to take something home today and use it for our own personal edification. In your name, amen. So this morning we want to take a look at two individuals, like I said, that Jesus met within the first 40 days of his life. Really, it's they met Jesus because Jesus was still a newborn. And they, of course, were Simeon and Anna. These are two individuals who are clearly godly examples for us on how to live our lives in the Lord all the way to the end. What I want to do is take a look at Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 38, and then give you four things that we can learn about from the character of Simeon and Anna. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and read through, like I said, verse 21 all the way to verse 38, and look at this story of pretty much the immediate aftermath of Jesus' time, or his birth. The first, like I said, 30 to, um, 30 to 60 days, give or take. Look at verse 21 to start with. And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. So Joseph and Mary followed the custom of the Jewish people. 
and had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day of his life, and then, and then his name was also given in that same time frame. Now, the point of this verse was not to emphasize the circumcision or his name being given uh, as much as it was to emphasize their obedience to the Lord. They did what God said. I mean, and again, if, a, if an army and angels came and, you know, with the shepherds and, and, and they were told by angels to do this, guess what? I'm probably going to name my kid Jesus too, which is what they, they chose to do. They were instructed to name him Jesus, and that is what they did, like I said. The name of Jesus is, is very significant. It is the Greek word, Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew translator, the Hebrew word, Yehoshua. And uh, Yehoshua is actually the Hebrew word for Joshua. So, kind of an interesting, you know, blow your brain kind of thing. Jesus' name is really Joshua, if you're going to read it in Hebrew. Joshua, and thus Jesus, means Yahweh is salvation. So it's an amazing name. You know, there's a very good reason that he was given this name. And, and again, that's just completely side information that has very little uh, significance, I guess, on what I'm going to talk about today. Look at verse 22 to 24. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were, complete, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord... For every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the Jewish law said that every firstborn male of anything, animal, whatever, was dedicated to God. And what needed to take place is the, the mother and father of this firstborn child literally needed to redeem that child from God. And that's why they would go and they would make a sacrifice to the Lord, redeeming Jesus to be their own child. Another interesting thing here that I think we can clearly see, um, or, or another piece of information taken from this section of the text, was that Mary needed to be, um, um, how do you say it? She needed to be pronounced ceremonially clean, because she was unclean because of her birth. And a woman would have been unclean for 40 days after the birth of a son, 80 days after the birth of a daughter. And, and now that the sacrifice is made, they had to make a, made a sin offering um, to make her clean again, if you wanted to call it that. And then the fact that Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph brought two turtle doves or two young pigeons says a lot about their financial situation. If you had more money, you were expected to give a lamb. They obviously couldn't afford a lamb, so the two turtle doves or two young pigeons was, was what they had, um, had given, of course. So look at verse 25 and 26. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So very little is known about Simeon. That's pretty much most of it. That gives all the information, you know, all the contextual information about this man. There is some question on whether or not he is a priest. Like, was he the priest in the temple whom Mary and Joseph were going to to make the sacrifices, um, one for her purity and one for redeeming uh, the Lord? Uh, and, and we don't really know. And honestly, I, some people say the text points towards that. I don't know if I believe it does. I don't believe it points towards Simeon being a priest within the temple. He might have been a priest, but not the one on, on service. And he honestly could have just been some random guy that was walking with the Lord. But this is what we do know about him. This is what Luke tells us regarding Simeon. First of all, he tells us that Simeon is righteous and devout. He was a godly man who did what God wanted him to do. 
The second thing was he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Consolation means the act of, com of comforting or consoling. The consolation of Israel or comforting of Israel was only going to arrive at the advent of the Messiah. Meaning he was looking for the coming Messiah. That's what that terminology means. The third thing we can learn from this little section of scripture about from Luke it was that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now this terminology is very interesting. It's very similar to Old Testament prophets whom the Holy Spirit was upon. But understand this. Christians today have the Holy Spirit within them. If you are saved, you have God the Spirit living inside you. He is all around us and He's within us. That was not the case with Old Testament saints as we would call them. They did not necessarily have the Holy Spirit with them at all times. So this was a significant fact that was being presented to us by Luke. The Holy Spirit being within or being upon Simeon is very significant. And then we see number four, the fourth thing we can learn about Simeon from the text, the fourth thing we know, is that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon's calling from God was that he would one day see the Messiah. That's what God the Holy Spirit told him. He will not die before he saw the Messiah. And of course, that's exactly what took place. Let's see that interaction. Look at verse 27 and 28 now. And he, meaning Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him, meaning Simeon took Jesus, into his arms and blessed God and said, and we're going to read what he said in a minute. So God the Spirit led Simeon to enter the temple at the perfect time, at right, at right the moment when Mary and Joseph and Jesus were together within that temple. The, their interaction was a divine interaction. It's kind of what I'm trying to point out. Now again, th this could be pointing towards Simeon being the priest. I mean, he could have been led by the Spirit to go to work at the same time that Mary and Joseph entered the temple. I just don't see it. I see Simeon being led by the Spirit to enter the temple, and then within the temple, court, temple courts, meaning outside the temple, there was the interaction that was 100% um, ordained by God. Now Luke tells us that Simeon took the Messiah into his arms. He held on to baby, he picked up and held baby Jesus. He blessed God, and then he cried out this song to the Lord. And the song is called, um, the, this is the, the Latin terminology for the song, and let me try to say it right, Nuke Dimitis, Dimitis, Nuke Dimitis. And it, is, uh, it comes from the beginning of the, of the Latin translation, is where the name of it comes from. So let's look at it. Verse 29, he sings, or says, Now, Lord, you, have, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. Now Simeon can die. He can die in peace. He saw the Messiah. And of course, this is true of all of us. Anyone who claims to be a Christian, if you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can die in peace as well. But I mean, Simeon was like, okay, Lord, you can take me now. I mean, he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe he's even older. We don't know how old he was. He, he's obviously in, in his older ages. But he finally has the moment he's been waiting for. Now verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. In Simeon's song, just like in the song of Zacharias and Mary, praise for God's salvation is given. It is through Jesus the Messiah that we are saved. Now look at verse 31 and 32. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
The salvation has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. Meaning, salvation has been made visible to everyone on this earth. I mean, it's made visible to all people, not just Israel, but also to the Gentiles. Now, if you remember a while, a couple weeks ago, I talked about um, the shepherds being informed of the birth of Christ by the angels. And we talked about how the context of, of the word peoples and whom they were announcing it to. Let me, let's flip back. Look at verse, um, where are we at? Uh, verse, uh, verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the peoples. And then in the, uh, in, in uh, verse 14, And glory to God in the highest, the, the song that the, uh, the angels sang, I guess. And glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. I mean, the reference to the people here that the angels were talking about was most likely focusing specifically on the Israelites. But like I said, just because the context was the Israelites, then doesn't mean the application is not all of us now. And I think in this context, it's completely opposite. Uh, Simeon is clearly pointing out that the salvation of God is not exclusive to a group of people. It's not exclusive to the Israelites. It's for everybody. It's available for whoever will go after it and go for it. Look at verse 33 now of Luke chapter 2. And we'll hear once again about a reaction that Mary and Joseph had. It says, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And honestly, when I hear this, I'm like, you think about the, the whole, like I said, now it's about 10, 11 months we're approaching. Mary was pregnant for nine months. She was informed before her conception. It's been 40 days since then. It's been a good chunk of time. You know, she, it begins with her being informed that she will conceive the Messiah. And then Joseph is informed by an angel that he will receive, that he's going to, that he can take Mary. That she, it's okay for him to take her as his wife because everything that, that Mary is saying is true. And then they make their way to Bethlehem. That had to have been one of the most trying times in their life. I mean, honestly, who wants to be nine months pregnant and traveling on a donkey for like seven to ten days? I don't think any one of us could would say we want to do that. And then the shepherds come, though. They, they, I mean, then, okay, let me back up. Then, you know, there's no room for that. You know, that innkeeper again, you know. That innkeeper, I'm telling you, every week it's the same thing. I have something to say to that innkeeper. No room in the end. They, Mary has to give birth in a stable. They put him in the manger. But then these shepherds come and tell of this amazing situation, amaz the amazing story of all these angels appearing. And now this. So after that, you know, after stuff, they probably settled down somewhere in Bethlehem and found a place to say they make their trip to Jerusalem 40 days later. And Simeon comes. And out of nowhere, Simeon comes and says, I, I was waiting for him. I know he's the Messiah. They didn't tell him. It's not like they held up and said, hey, look, the Messiah is here. That's not what they did. Yet Simeon recognized the Messiah through God the Spirit that was within him. Uh, just, uh, just Mary and Joseph had to have been like, wow. Like, I, oh, wow, this is just too much. I mean, to me, it's just unbelievable. Now look at verse 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The New Living Translation translates this a little bit differently. I thought this was easier to understand. These are Simeon's words from the New Living Translation. It says, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. 
He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose Him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. I mean, Simeon prophesied about what Jesus' life was going to be like. He pointed out what Jesus was going to go through. And then he also pointed out the, maybe some of the emotions Mary was going to go through. Because remember, Mary was at the foot of the cross. Mary watched her son die on a cross. I mean, talking about a traumatic experience. I mean, any parent can relate to how they would want to do whatever it took. And another side thought here, you hear you got no reference of Joseph. You know, we believe that Joseph died somewhere between the 12th year of Jesus' life, which we're going to study next week about Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Jesus going to the temple when he was 12 and him getting lost. In the 30th year when Jesus' ministry began. At some time in that time frame, Joseph died. And I just I kind of wonder if Simeon was prophetic on that as well. Look at verse 36 and 37. And we will introduce um, Anna as we, uh, as we continue on here. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then, as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. So there's a little more information about Anna, at least from the text. But again, not a whole lot, not much more than what we know about Simeon. I mean, we know her father, which in my mind, the reasoning for Luke saying that was because I bet you the people of Luke's time, the readers of his gospel understood who she was, had a better idea of who she was. I mean, she lived in the temple for a long chunk of her life. So I would think they knew who she was, but us today, we just have no clue. We don't have enough information to say, oh, that's who this was from a historical perspective. She was of the tribe of Asher, that was the, of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes of Israel, that was her tribe. I think it's interesting also, again, she was married, probably at a young age. She was living, she lived with her husband for seven years, and then he died, and she became a widow. The question is, the 84 years, is that her total lifespan at the point that Luke is talking about? Is it her lifespan at the point that she died? So she lived to 84? Or another thought, and I never really thought of this, is it the time that she was widowed? Meaning she's very old. Like in her hundreds. And I'm not, uh, either way, the point is, she lived in the temple for a long period of time. I mean, if she got married at 15, her husband died at, at 22, she's been in the temple for 62 years, give or take. And again, that's not 100% either, but the thought here is that she has dedicated her life to the service of the Lord within the temple in Jerusalem, and that's what she did. That was her job. That was her life. Not more than a job. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Let's go ahead and look at verse 38 now, and we'll finish my text. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continue to speak of Him, of all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So once again, a divine timing. You know, God's timing is perfect. You have Simeon, he's interacting with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and now out of nowhere, the Lord leads Anna to the same interaction. She interacts, now she comes into the picture. Her reaction to finding Jesus the Messiah was first of praise and thanksgiving, but then it followed with evangelism. You know, her interaction led her to tell whoever she can about Jesus. And more specifically about the redemption of Jerusalem, which more or less is a similar synonym to the consolation of Israel. 
Jerusalem is now redeemed because the Messiah has come. That's kind of what we're getting at here. The New Living Translation translates this part of verse 38 this way. It says, She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. And guess what? God has rescued Jerusalem. Jesus has been born. So let's take a look at the application here and try to understand what this is. And like I said, I'm going to give you four points of application in a moment. So there's a lot we can learn about these two individuals, these two godly people. This is especially true when we look at some descriptions of them. So Luke describes Simeon as a righteous and devout individual looking for the consolation of Israel. And he describes Anna as a prophetess. And in, from my perspective, from his description, you can't say that she was anything less than righteous and devout. Very much devoted to God. In verse 37, it says, She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. I mean, how much more devoted do you need to be? Luke tells us that she was also looking for the coming Messiah. So in my mind, they're very similar. So understand, let's understand this word righteous to start with. Righteous is an adjective which comes from the Greek word dikaios, which describes a person who is observing divine law, someone who is upright in keeping the commandments of God. It comes from the noun, which is its root word, dika, or dk, dk, which means right or just. From my perspective, I always define righteous or righteousness as an individual who is in the right state with God. You are in a just or right state with God, being considered right or just in the eyes of God. In the Old Testament, the only way that you can be righteous was by keeping the laws, and if you failed to do so, you had to make a sacrifice every time you broke that law, every time you sinned. In the New Testament, and today, of course, this is done through a relationship with Jesus. Even though we sin, Christ has made us right or just because of what he did for us on the cross, paying our sacrificial death, you know, making that permanent sacrifice and forgiving us of our sins and reconciling us in heaven with God when he rose from the grave so that we could one day enter the gates of heaven Devote comes from the Greek adjective eulabase, eulabase, which has the literal meaning of taking hold well. And from the context we're looking at, it means revering God, or being pious or religious, meaning it's taking a hold of your beliefs and holding onto it tight. That's what it means to be devoted to something. The idea here is that Simeon and Anna had a good grasp on their belief in God. They were devoted to the Lord. All Christians are made righteous through their belief in Jesus. So there's two ways of looking at righteousness. You are made righteous through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, and your belief in that. You are made righteous. You are saved. You are also striving to become righteous, you know, in our walk with God, right? It's a growth in righteousness, and that's the righteousness we're talking about here. All Christians should strive to grow in righteousness and devotion to God. How do we do this? We do this by those big three things I keep on telling you about. Talking to Him through prayer, listening to Him through His Word, and fellowshipping with Him through His church. That's how we grow in our faith, and that's how we become more righteous. A closer relationship with God equals a life of devotion to Him. Simeon and Anna found that they received great benefit from a life of righteousness and devotion, and Christians today can embrace these same blessings from God. So, as a result of their devotion towards God, a righteous Christian will be able to do four things, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So, a righteous and devout Christian will be able to first recognize God's will. Recognize God's will. 
Someone who is close to God is going to have a better understanding of who God is and what he desi- His desires are. And the example for me is a married couple, right? I mean, if you are two individuals who are married and who are deeply in love with each other, know everything about the other person. There is not a single person on the face of this planet that knows more about Tabitha than myself because I am devoted to her in love. The more I know about God, the more I will be able to discern His plan and will for my life and the life of my family. We see this very clearly in Paul's writings to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the key. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't, don't for one second think that you can't prove what the will of God is. Paul just said we could. We do that by living a life of service towards Him. Through giving of ourselves. Prove in Romans 12 verse 2 means to test, examine, prove, or scrutinize. You're going to be able to discern what God wants you to do if you're having a closer walk with God. In the same way that in theory I'm going to be able to discern what my wife wants me to do through having a closer relationship with her. The same deal here. Number two, a righteous and devout Christian will be able to be a blessing to others. To be a blessing to others, or better blessing to others, might even be better a better way to look at this. A righteous and devout follower of Christ is one who is able to truly bless and encourage other people. One who doesn't have a righteous and devout walk with Christ will never be able to truly bless others, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, it doesn't matter. Now, what does it mean to bless other people? And I honestly thought this was the easiest way to understand it. It would be to love people like Jesus. You bless other people by loving them like Jesus. Paul writes once again to the church in Rome, Romans 15, verse 1 to 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but it is, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. We do what God wants us to do. Christians, put Christ on display through their words and their actions. This might include what we do for those who do not know Jesus. might include what we do to those of, uh, in a disastrous situation. But it does include what we do to our fellow Christians. The way we interact with our fellow Christians. Uh, Paul writes to the church in uh, Thessalonica, um, Thessalonians chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing, or also doing, or you also are doing. And then he tells the church in Galatia, uh, Galatians 6, verse, 20, uh, verse 2, bear one, another, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So really my question is this, and this is the point. You know, we can be a blessing to other people. We can be a blessing to people outside the church, and we should be. But how can we be a blessing to people outside the church if we're not blessing each other, if we're not loving each other the way Jesus loved us? What does it look like to those outside the church if all we are doing is bickering and fighting? We are not putting Christ on display through our words and our actions, that's for sure. It should be the goal of every Christian to put the needs of others before their own. Bottom line. Number three, a righteous and devout Christian will be able to give genuine praise and thanksgiving to God. To give genuine praise and thanksgiving to God. A righteous and devout Christian 
can praise and thank God from deep within themselves. And here really was my thought here. How frequently do we, at times, get frustrated and just, okay, we're good, you know? Like, you know, when things are going well, you're not thanking God all the time. You're not praising God all the time. Things are going good. You don't need to talk to Him. But when things are going bad, guess what? You're begging Him once again. Oh, God, please, 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 help me, help me, help me. The point here is if we have a proper walk with God, our praise to God would be all the time. It wouldn't just be when things are good. It wouldn't just be when things are bad. It'd be all the time. We'd be talking to Him. I mean, do you think you can honestly praise God in the midst of a difficult situation? I mean, I pray that you could. That's my, my goal as your pastor, is that you can praise God in the midst of a difficult situation. Think about all that He has done in your life. Think about all the blessings that He has given you. Think about the provisions He has provided you with. And then, most importantly, think about the free gift He has given you in salvation through Jesus. We don't deserve His grace, yet He gives it, gives it to us anyway. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, let's go ahead and read verse 1 to 6. Psalm 95, verse 1 to 6. So the 95th Psalm, starting at verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. I mean, the bottom line is we have an amazing God. And that amazing God has provided for our every need. He's blessed us beyond our ability to comprehend. And he's provided the most essential part of our lives. That, of course, being salvation. That, of course, being grace. Psalm 7, verse 17 says this, I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Most High, of the Lord Most High. I mean, how thankful are you towards God's amazing grace and blessings upon your life? I mean, that's it, right? If you are walking in righteousness and devoted, if you are walking a righteous and devoted walk with the Lord, then you will be able to sing praises with thanksgiving to His awesome name all the time. Not just when things are going good, not just when things are going bad, but all the time. That's the point. Number four, a righteous and devout Christian will be able to tell others, tell everybody, everyone about Jesus. I mean, look at Anna. I mean, look at the reaction. I mean, and it's very similar to that of the shepherds. She didn't hesitate. She went forth. The first thing she did was say, hey, the Messiah has been born. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, think about the Jewish people. They had waited and waited and waited, and now something that has you know, some relevance is pointing towards the birth of the Messiah. And that's what Anna did. She went and she told whoever she could about the birth of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, meaning to Jerusalem, Your God reigns. Christians should run over the mountaintops for the opportunity to tell other people about Jesus. 
Evangelism should be a natural part of our walk with Christ. Jesus, in appearing before His disciples after His resurrection, says in John chapter 20, verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Then, he, then Mark records similar words in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Christians are called to tell other people about Jesus. Not just in Jerusalem or Israel, not just in Westwood or California, but to all the world. What are you doing to spread the gospel of Jesus, spread the good news of Jesus to all the world? Are you telling your friends, your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers, etc. about Jesus? Are you involved in missions through your participation, your prayers, and your giving? I mean, we, we pray for these IMB, the missionaries, the loose change and whatnot. And it's amazing to think that these are people that have given so much to go forth. You know, you can be that. You can do that. Maybe not permanently. But there, there are options for every one of us. If someone was interested in being on mission for Christ, you can go and be on mission for Jesus in, in London. Go help that church out for a couple weeks. How cool would that be? But there's other ways too. Prayer goes a long ways. I mean, we need to pray for our missionaries. We need to pray for those who are serving the Lord at, at such a high level. And, and really the bottom line, here's really the reason. The reason is because you were called to do so. We have been called to tell the world about Christ. Jesus has called you to tell other people about Him. So go and do so. Let me close up. It should be the Christian's desire to live a righteous and devoted life to God. A life focused on God. That should be our desire. When we are focused on God, we will be better able to recognize God. We will be a blessing, a better blessing to others. We will be able to give genuine praise and thanksgiving to God, and then finally we will be able to tell the world about Christ. We will be led to tell the world about Christ. Are you ready to be a righteous and devout Christian today? I mean, look at Simeon and Anna. Anna lived her life in the temple. Can you imagine moving into church and living in the church and serving God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? You know, I, sometimes I feel like I do, but I really don't. I'm not here all the time. I'm not always doing that. That's what Anna was, though. She was doing it 100%. Then you look at Simeon. He was, had such a great walk with God that the Holy Spirit was all around him. The Holy Spirit led him around. Led him into the temple. And it was the Holy Spirit that led him to that divine interaction with Jesus. And that's really the thought here. Have you had that divine interaction with Christ? I pray that you have. And then my next question is, how about those that you love? Your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, all, all that big long list of people, everybody. Have they had a divine interaction with Christ? I mean, my prayer is that they have, because if they haven't, it's, it's not as good. It's not, the, it's not what you would want. They go the other direction. And they're going to have an interaction with the devil. As Christians, we need to tell other people about Christ. Are you ready to do so today? Let's close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you once again for the, the opportunity you've given me to declare your word. Allow me to be a light to my community in the same way that I'm asking each and every one of us to be a light to our community. I ask that you bless us and give us the power, give us the, the, the strength to tell whoever we come into contact with about you. I thank you and I praise you in your wonderful name. Amen.